The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you've made clear to us in numerous places, Old and New Testament alike, most recently in the previous chapter in Luke, what you require of us is that we love you, the Lord our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves. That we love you with all of our all, whole devotion to you what you call for. That's good. That's what we'll consider this morning here. And I ask you to give us power to understand it well. Clarity to to see where we fall short. And eyes to see where you step in and redeem and fix and win us all, wholly all, to yourself. So, Father, to put it another way, what I'm praying for is that you would this morning make us aware of ourselves and then take our eyes off of ourselves. That you would make us aware of who we are and then make us more aware of who you are and what you have done. And in so doing, you would draw our hearts on, heart, soul, mind, and strength onto you. So give us eyes to see here this morning, Lord, and Pray particularly that you would clear away distraction from us as we listen and speak. Please help me to focus and to say what needs to be said and to say it clearly enough that it would be helpful. So open up this passage to us, please, Father. Would you commission your spirit now to move through the room here and to... to to harness us, to gather our minds and hearts to see you in your word, to hear what you have to say. And would you build a church in joy because of it? To have your way with us this morning to build us up in joy. We cast ourselves on you knowing you to be good. Look for you to do that. And we pray in Christ's name for it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the last half of Luke chapter 11. Throughout this chapter, we've seen much of Jesus teaching us about what proper response to him and to his message looks like. We must receive him properly. We've talked about that quite a bit. He's the sign sent from heaven, Jesus the messenger with the great message of the kingdom. That was a couple weeks ago. He talked about how God sent this sign to us a messenger with a message, and that we are to respond to him. We are to to see the sign. And then continuing on with that idea of seeing, he moved into last week to talk about light. Presented to us the the work of God as a lamplighter, as if God's lighting a lamp, lighting Jesus, the lamp. And like any lamplighter, he lights Jesus with the intention of setting him up and illuminating something that is otherwise dark. 
That's what God's doing, shining forth Jesus to light up the dark world around us and, of course, particularly to get that light into us so that light would not just be out there but would come inside and light us up within so that we would glow. Light outside and light inside us. That's God's goal, which he accomplishes, as was already prayed this morning, by giving us new eyes to see in the gospel. God's gracious work in the gospel is not just to shine light out there, but to give us eyes to see so that light comes in here. And we are made new. The light that is life is planted in us. So our job then is to look on Christ, to be careful to consider Christ. Proper response. Unlike the religious leaders of the day, which is what takes us to our passage for today. So you're still talking about response, but kind of turning it to show us what not to do, what, what response doesn't look like. It's going to show us something related to Pharisees. And it, it's, a, it's a long, the whole second half of this chapter is, it, is a long denunciation, a long condemnation, really, as Jesus again and again and again and again lifts up and brings down a, a condemnation on the, the undertakings of the Pharisees, on the approach of the Pharisees. And it's, it's a lengthy passage that concludes the, the rest of this chapter. We're going to deal with it all together, even though it is very long. And in doing that, I'm, I'm doing it because, though there are particular little things throughout the passage, together, I, I think it's more helpful to look at what the common point is. So I'm going to treat it all together commonly, which means it's a big chunk. I read a lot, and I'll deal with some things with less detail perhaps than normal, but I'm doing that because I want to see the whole big picture. And it's a big picture that applies to us. As we read it, you'll notice Jesus, of course, he begins, as we'll see, responding to a question raised by a Pharisee, and then three times mentions Pharisee, Pharisee, Pharisee. But in the middle, a scribe, a lawyer, someone who dealt with the law of God, speaks up and realizes Though I'm not a Pharisee, you're talking about me. Because it's not really about a title or something that only a certain little group of people do. It's an approach that the Pharisees had, that other leaders had, that other people have, that we even have. So this is not just about something the, the bad leaders did back then. It, it's about something common today, maybe even in our own lives. So we're going to deal with it all, and we're going to approach it not with a, the heavy tone of condemnation that, that Jesus brings. We're going to approach it trying to understand what it is that he's after, and then how it is that we're supposed to respond to that. So I'm going to read the whole passage. It's long, beginning of verse 37 through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pass back and make a couple of observations. This is beginning in Luke chapter 11 with verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the temples of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. This has been existing in, in a context of, of growing resistance, and it just goes boom right here. High confrontation. And they hound him afterwards, attempting to trap him so as to finally deal with him. This is not a pleasant, friendly conversation. Understatement. And if we were in a different context, it would be more appropriate to give, to, to give full weight to the, the woe, woe, woe. Woe is a statement of condemnation. But this is written in the Gospel of Luke to the church, to a man, if you recall from the very beginning, a man who is a Christian and is trying to evaluate what he has heard, trying to evaluate which way he should go. And it's written in the Gospel of Luke for the church to hear, not that way. The way they are walking, the Lord, emphasis, that's how he responds, the Lord said to them, that is, God says, woe to you pronounces as strongly as he can for all of us to see judgment on this path. The way not to go. So here's our first point. Which we watch so as to learn not that way. Here's the first point. God is not pleased with the self-effort of skin-deep religion. God is not pleased 
with the self-effort of skin-deep religion. That's the phrase I'm going to use to try to, to summarize this whole thing, to capture all of this. There are, of course, a bunch of details. We, we note hypocrisy. We, we note mean-spiritedness. We note hyper-attention to minuscule things, a, a thinking that I'm righteous by my particular activities. We could note many different little things, pride. But to try to wrap them all up, the phrase I'm using here, self-effort, it's about something I do, we do the self-effort of skin-deep religion. Something that focuses on externals, on the outside, to the exclusion of the internal heart-level change that God is after. Self-effort of skin-deep religion. People think it looks pious and it looks religious and it looks serious and, and holy, but it isn't. God is not pleased with this approach. It's a long passage. He says, woe to you. This statement of condemnation is coming again and again and again to you. Not just to them out there, the evil generation, the people, but to those who regarded themselves as most spiritual. Jesus brings it home to them. The Pharisee, it begins with the Pharisee who is, who is shocked that Jesus did not wash before dinner. That's a washing that's not about germs and dirt. It's a ceremonial washing, which is not required by the law of Moses in this situation, but the Pharisees had come to teach it anyway with the belief that you actually wash off spiritual contamination to make oneself clean before God. And Jesus didn't do it on purpose, of course, so as to trigger this prophetic confrontation. What's the problem? Great concern to make the outside look clean. The outer surface look good and spotless with no concern for the unseen filth on the inside. Inside, he says, you are full of greed and wickedness. It's revealing about where they think righteousness is found on the outside. By how I look and by what I do. That's skin-deep religion. Religious behavior, religious self-effort. And, and by self-effort, I, I mean things you might do, but also things that might look like you're not doing anything, like sitting passively, inactive, all day Sabbath. Praying, it looks like you're, you're not active at all, you're, but you're committed to prayer, or, or you're fasting and not eating anything. Those are, those are types of effort as well, as are some of the other things that Jesus mentions. He, he mentions giving of alms, and he comes next to the very careful, exact tithing, not just on income and not on crops in the field, but on the little snippings from your garden. The herbs, very careful, counting out one-tenth to give it to God. Or, down below, ropes in the lawyers talking about how as teachers they would lay on burdens onto people, meaning they would tell them this is what's required and that's required and this is required and that's required, brick upon brick upon brick upon brick of the things you must do. Things you must do, your effort must be of this sort and that's how you become righteous and it crushes people. Now, we have to, to add quickly 
that some of that is, in fact, required in the Old Testament law. So when I talk about laying on, laying on, laying on, laying on, some of those things are required. Like Jesus says, the tithe, he says pretty clearly, you should do one without throwing away the other. Because tithing is in the Bible. Many of the things the Pharisees and the scribes would have put their finger on and would have taught, the burdens they would have laid on people, can be found. Not all of them. Some of them are, are twists and, and expansions and add-ons, but, but a bunch of them are actually in the Old Testament text. Now, we could have another discussion about how much of the Old Testament law applies to us today. That's another discussion. Point is, some of, in fact, much of what they would have seen and would have taught is actually there. Jesus is not after, is not, not condemning obedience or holding to God's law. What's he saying? The problem is that to the exclusion of this. As if that's what determines righteousness and inside you can be full of wickedness. That you could very carefully tithe off of your herbs and be inside completely unconcerned with justice and the love of God. That's the problem. The neglect of internal heart attitude. He does not want them to, to separate here's my behavior, here's what I do, and I'm good and fine doing that. That's what's seen, that's what's on the outside, never mind the inside. Now, we could ask, but why is that a problem? I mean, clearly that's the problem, but why is that a problem? Because if, if we think about for a second how the world works, if I, for instance, do business with a local vendor, I don't really care if he's greedy in his heart. As long as he charges me what he said he'd charge me and delivers what he said he'd deliver, I don't care about greed in the heart. I don't care if the waiter at the restaurant actually likes me as long as he acts like he does and brings my food, right? We deal with, we, we just fine deal with this separation. I, I only need, what, what's required as we interact in society is behavior. I don't know your heart. I don't really care about it in most situations. So why is this a problem? Why is God, what's, what's the problem? Well, the problem is because of verse 40. Jesus says to them, to the Pharisee there, those of this attitude, you fools. In the Bible language, a fool is someone who's living without reckoning God in the equation. He says, you fools, don't you realize that he who made the outside also made the inside. He who made. He's driving us back to think about God creating. And God created us as a union, a unity. We are one. We are outside and inside together. We are not sometimes outside, sometimes inside. He doesn't only bump into the outside like I do with the waiter. 
But he engages with us. He made us as a, as a single person, an outside and an inside a whole. And what he says is, that's the, that's the you that I relate to, all of you. And that's the you that I lay claim on. That's the you that I want. I want you to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of you, the wholeness. And I, I will not let you separate. I'll love you in one way, but I'll love myself in another. No. God made us as, as a unity of outside and inside and wants us, not some subset of us. And so what this is, this, this separation of, of self-effort on the outside and never mind the inside, what it is, is it, it's, it's piety masquerading. It, it, it's, a, it's a facade. In fact, what it is, is, is it's me reserving to myself the right to be my own God. I will be, in, in the inside of me, in the heart, I will be what I want to be, and I'll pretend to be what you say I have to be on the outside. It's a facade. God wants the whole of us. He wants that we would be not greedy and not covetous in the heart, and also that we wouldn't steal with our hands. He wants that we would be not wicked in the heart, that we would not love evil, but in fact would love justice and would love righteousness in the heart as well as be polite. Both. There's a, un a connection there. We are one in our beings. If we are to be teachers of people, Leaders of people, like the, like the lawyers on there, he wants us not only to, to lay on what is required, but then to be people who help carry that load. I think in the context what he means is teaching not just what's required, but also how to, how to fulfill what's required. Not to crush people, but to help them walk in it. What's pleasing to God is the whole person all given over to him, all valuing and loving him. Loving righteousness and justice and loving neighbor as himself. This has always been the requirement of God from Moses, who wrote the law, through the prophets, through Jesus, and today. So God, God is not pleased with, though it is probably the common way of the world, God is not pleased with this attempt to, to divide ourselves and behave in a, a pious and righteous and apparently obedient way out here, never mind the heart. He wants all of us, which is going to push us into the heart. It's going to force us to consider the heart. This is the problem in the passage. An unwillingness to consider the heart. And the extensive treatment of the, the prophets in the second half, that's what the prophets constantly get after. And that's why they were resisted and killed. Because they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And this prophet Jesus, and today as he speaks in his apostles and prophets, is pushing us past the outside into the inside and saying, here's where you have to deal with me. I want, I want the inside of you. 
So that's the first point. God is not pleased with, the, with this self-effort that's focusing on skin-deep religion. We say that to start, and then move to the second observation, where we kind of, kind of turn it to ourselves here. So understand what I'm doing at first here. I'm just identifying the problem, and then here's our response to it. We ourselves, second observation, we ourselves can never be satisfied with the self-effort of skin-deep religion. We ourselves can never be satisfied with the self-effort of skin-deep religion. So the, the first part is, is kind of what happened, Jesus speaking against this, and the second part you might say is, why is this in Luke for us? So that we see it and realize that we can never be satisfied with it. And I mean that in two ways. Can never be satisfied as in we are unable to be satisfied. We can't be satisfied with it. It won't, it won't do it. It won't cut it. And, I mean it, we must not be satisfied. We must not settle for it. We are unable to be satisfied with this kind of approach to God because it is empty. It is a religious life that in fact is death. Included in each of these woes is the language of cut off from God are you. Cut off from God are you. One day at the judgment for sure. But even now, it is the life of alienation from God, even now. A life lived without him, at, at odds with him. Jesus drives us home in verses 44 and 52, where he uses some, some colorful language. 44, speaking to the Pharisees again, your, your approach to, to dealing with God, it, all I can say about that is, woe to you. You are like unmarked graves place where a dead person's buried. You are dead, and being dead, according to the Old Testament law, which they would have known well, anybody who comes in contact with that is themselves, him or herself, unclean. You're dead, not in communion with God. Anybody who comes in contact with you, anybody who who follows your ways, themselves cut off from communion with God, unclean. Unwittingly so, they're following you because they think this is the religious life, this is the way to go, these are the people who know, but you're actually leading them into death and isolation from God also. You're dead and you contaminate them. You, th you think you're, you're alive, but you're not. Verse 52 in fact, you don't enter into the presence of God and you take away the key. You block other people from going too. There are people who are following you around like a guide leading somebody through a maze who himself is unwilling to go towards the door. They're following you because they think it leads to the door, but you're not going there. And neither are they. You're not getting out of the maze, or, or, or in this, really, you're not getting into the presence of God. You're dead and lost, and those who follow you are too. 
these are two matching conclusions. The conclusion of speaking to the Pharisees, the conclusion of speaking to the scribes. Both of them are saying, you guys are so religious and so careful on the outside. And one looks at you and says, you scrupulously follow all the rules, but you've kept it all out there and the result is death in here. And those who follow you find the same thing. Death in here. No God. So stop right there and think about what that means for us. This is, and I've, as I've, aside, as I've written this sermon, like five different times I've tried to figure out where exactly do I talk about how this actually is about us. And I don't know, I'm talking about here. I, I know that as, as I preach through this, a bunch of us are thinking, man, the Pharisees are terrible. The Pharisees are terrible, they're Pharisees. Or, man, other religions in the world, and this is how every other religion in the world works. Every other religion in the world works like this. Here's what you do, and when you do this, you're doing pretty good. Every other religion works like that. And most people actually think Christianity works like that, too, because they see all the requirements, and they think, well, that's just how it, how it works. You obey all the laws, you're doing well. That's not Christianity at all. Most of us think that this is talking about those kinds of people. This is... This is here for us so that we don't go this way. And we are strongly inclined to go this way. Christians, we're strongly inclined to go this way constantly. Behind, maybe some of this connects to you, behind every bit of guilt-driven performance, ever been driven to do something out of guilt? Okay, there's you. Behind every bit of guilt-driven performance or fearful failure of performance. Behind every time that you didn't read your Bible and didn't pray and didn't come to church and, and didn't give to that cause or whatever it was. Every time you didn't and you felt like, man, I really should have. And now I don't know if God actually is pleased with me. Or when you did, and now you feel like a champ. Behind every bit of, of in your mind, temptation to or actually coming out of your mouth, judgmentalism. You know what she's like? You know what he does? Behind every bit of, of insecurity in life, I'm, I'm not sure if God has my back here Behind so much of our rigorous attention to and I say this carefully because it is good to be rigorous and attentive so as not to sin. But behind every bit of rigorous attention to there is the possibility that what lurks there behind your, your attempt to not look at that thing on the internet, your attempt to not look at her as she walks down the street, your attempt to, to not snap off at the mouth and say that snarky comment, behind every self-restricting, self-binding, steering away from sin, there's a possibility that what's there is the feeling that God will bless or curse if I do or don't. I say that very carefully because 
We do have to work at not sinning. But why? That's the question. It's possible that what's lying behind that is your belief that my behavior determines God's attitude towards me. External, separate from the internal. Hypocrisy and works righteousness and judgmentalism and uncertainty and fear are words known in the church, are experiences known in the church. Not by all of us all the time, but some of the time. Some of the time. This is applicable to us. So I don't know if that fit here or not, but that's where it is. But it can't actually satisfy us. Do you see what that is? What this self-effort, skin-deep religion is? What it is, it's, it's a religious life that is it like this? No, no. It's like this, looking at what I'm doing and how I'm being. It's a life, ultimately, that's focused on me and my performance, not on God and his performance. And it leaves me cut off from him, living independent of him, the one my heart was made for. It cannot satisfy us. We are never actually satisfied with the Pharisaic religious life. We miss God, the one for whom we were made. We miss God and his work in our weakness and failure and inability. That's what actually is meant to lift up our hearts. And we skip it by setting our, our attention on what we are doing. That is, that is sad. It, does, it never satisfies us, so we cannot be satisfied with it. We can't let ourselves settle there. That may seem obvious to us, but why then do we settle there? Why do all the religions of the world work that way, and why are we constantly drawn to it? Because... Because from the beginning, in the beginning, that actually is how we related to God. For a moment. Before the fall, do this and you shall live, worked. So we got about one page in the Bible on which that was the way it was. And then we fell. And our hearts became darkened. And ever since then, this has been the way we in our confusion still think we are to engage with God by what we do. In pride, we think that the problem is just in what we do. We're not even aware that our hearts are fallen and darkened. We think that it's, the problem is skin deep. The problem is just out here. And if I, if I can like sort it out and make, put a little bit more effort into it, then I can actually fix what's wrong. I don't understand me in the depth of my fallenness. And on top of that, it gives us much of what we're looking for in our fallenness. 
It leaves us in control. Think about this for a second. This is perhaps counterintuitive. But there is a strange yet strong comfort in living out here with a list of of even burdensome rules. Because you can see what to do and the existence of such a list testifies, so we think, to the fact that it can be done. So we think. There's what I have to do to save myself. Which means I can save myself if I just work a little bit harder at it. Now, I'm not doing it today, but, but next week I'll get around to it. And I can strive, and I, I can leave God aside like I want to. And in my own effort, I can step up, and I can make it happen, and I can fix me. We can fix us. There's the list. Even if it's a long and crushing list, there is something surprisingly comforting about that. It's still in my hands. It's still in our hands. It is incredibly threatening to find the Bible saying, no, it isn't. There's not a thing you can do about it. You're hopeless. We don't like to hear that. We would rather get a long list. That list then gives us something that gives us something else we want. A standard by which to perform from which then we can be praised and honored. If I set up a list and I undertake to fulfill it, then there's something there that I can put in front of the world and it can show you how good I am. We love, just like the Pharisees, we love the honored seats and the greeting in the marketplace. There's a good man. There's a holy one. She's so righteous. Only way you can judge that is by what you see. And so I live out there and propagate the idea that we're supposed to live out here so that I can be praised by you. I feel so much more at rest. It's under my control, and I feel so honored because you tell me how good I am. This is so seductive. It is so inviting. It feels intuitively right. So we are drawn to it. Self-effort of skin-deep religion, it delivers so much to human beings that we want, except that it actually doesn't. As he says, woe to you, woe to you. Hear the words of this great prophet that says, woe over that whole lifestyle, that whole approach. You must be wholly, completely, internally clean. And you're not. There is no praise of you. You're not good. There is no list that you can fulfill. You can't. So always said the prophets, and that's why they were killed. 
So hear the words of this prophet. Hear, hear these words. Be humbled before it and, and turn to him and say, you're, you're right, this is a hard reality. And I, I hear it as you attempt to pierce into me past the outer shell and pierce into my heart and expose it as full of greed and wickedness and unconcerned with justice and love. And notice this about yourself, even though you, you would, as Christians, we all would, we, we must say, that's right, that's good, that we would be people of love and people of justice and people who set aside greed and reject it. Yes, indeed. But do you notice that it still springs up in you? Even though you know it's wrong, it still springs up in you. Lovelessness springs up. The problem is so deep in you. So what do you do with that? What a Pharisee does is says, never mind, let me count out 10%. Brothers and sisters, don't go there. Can you sit under can you, can you sit under, can you receive and sit under? You are after my heart that is desperately wicked and has no hope. Can you sit under the message of the prophets? If you sit all the way under it, yes, you can. Because the message of the prophets... And the message of this prophet is first this stripping away of all the protection, this piercing to the heart, so that then when this light shines in, what then comes to us, what then eyes given by God see is another one sent in our place. He does not respond then by commending us. He responds by sending a substitute for us. One who did himself perfectly live the unified life, righteous on the outside and a heart that was right and just and always full of love. One that did both the outside and the inside. One that embodied the justice and the love of God towards us. Who when he was despised and rejected, who was loaded down with a massive burden, all of our burdensome sins, and no one was found to help him. He carried it all himself. So that then, what, what then, what then? So that he can then turn and help you carry it. The requirements don't go away. The requirements, the failure of the requirements are carried by another and then he comes and stands beside you lifting not just hand but arms and himself up on the cross to lift up himself to help you carry this what's required. To make you a new person. But we will not be completely, 
we will not understand the, the magnitude of, of what God has done for us in Christ until we understand the hopelessness of, a, of our way of pursuing God. God has sent His Son, one and only one person ever pursued, ever lived out before God a whole love of Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a whole love of neighbor as Himself. And that one was sent for you. For you to lift your eyes off of what you do in an attempt to make yourself right. To give all that up and say, I am a failure. And to lift up your eyes onto him and what he has done. And what comes of that is actual life. Two ways. What comes of that is a life that is in union with God a life that is connected to him and therefore is a life of rejoicing. It actually is a life of worship with eyes set on God. And with eyes set on God, what happens in this is he begins to then change how we actually walk through life. We become more unified outside and inside, more aligned with God outside and inside. So what do we take from all of this? On the one hand, I think that probably, I'm talking to a church, and probably on the one hand, a lot of us say, well, yeah, sure. Of course. Don't be a Pharisee. I've been hearing that for however long I've been in the church. Okay, yeah, Right. What I'm inviting you to do is circle back around and look at how you are unwittingly a Pharisee with yourself. To try to put your finger on the places where I think that my performance determines how God views me or my lack of performance determines how God views me. Where other people's performance or lack of performance determines how I think God views them and how I view them. Put your finger on your insecurities. Put your finger on your, your strident attention to obedience and ask, why so careful? Put your finger on all that and to ask yourself, am I living an attempt to justify myself out here? And then say, Lord, I got nothing in here. In myself, nothing in here. And then look to Christ and say, thank you. That you are the one who came to save me. To satisfy my failure in here. And then, day by day by day, to renew me on the inside. So you can face the inside, you can face it. Because he is forgiven it and is renewing it. This is a good Savior. Our response to him should be a receiving, a receiving of that which pierces us to the heart, and a rejoicing 
that he has come to change our hearts. Let me pray. Father, I confess to you that sometimes I think about Pharisees, my first thought is to condemn them. And my second thought is to identify Pharisees around me and condemn them. Would you for me and maybe for others here in our congregation, would you graciously make our first thoughts an awareness about ourselves where and how we sometimes live a religion on the outside would you make us aware of that please it would be a gracious thing for you to do and will you then right behind that Follow it up with a Jesus who is able to save our hearts, to make them new, so they don't have to be covered up and ignored, but can actually be looked at and fixed. Show us ourselves and show us Jesus. We're now going to take communion. We're going to hold in our hands cup and bread. You gave this, this moment, this small ceremony here to provide regular mental reminder of what you did in sending Jesus for us. So as we take cup and bread in hand, Lord, will you Speak to your people. Remind them that you have come to make them new. And stir in us thanksgiving and joy over that. Where there's need for repentance, make that apparent. Where there's a need for hope to be built up, please build it. You know what each person here needs, so will you come and now Meet with us. Build your church. Honor your name, not the name of the church. Honor your name. Gain for yourself the, the prime seat and the greatest honor in our midst. Lift up our eyes and show us what you have done for us. You are good and kind, Father, and we say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.